You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll kick off a series of interviews with candidates for state Senate, starting with Erin Smith. She's one of two candidates challenging incumbent state Senator Scott Weiner for his seat, and she's a Republican. My personal opinion from what I've seen is I feel like the Democratic Party is just turning very technocratic. Part of being a Republican in the city is like, how do you prove that the establishment doesn't own you? If you have the big scarlet R, you're not part of the establishment, that's for sure. I also think that like a uni party state or locality, that's bad for everyone. You know, you need an opposition to keep everyone on your toes and like call people out. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. As part of our election coverage, we're bringing you interviews with candidates hoping to become the next state senator for District 11 here in San Francisco. The primary for this race, which doesn't go by party lines unlike presidential primaries, happens March 3rd with the final election in November. The top two vote-getters at the primary election move on to the general election, even if both candidates have specified the same party preference. Aaron Smith is a San Francisco transplant from the Mississippi Delta, a merchant marine officer who was assigned as one of her first experiences in command to respond to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. She's also a pilot and a free speech and gun rights activist, and now she's running for state senate against incumbent Scott Weiner. We're talking with Erin today to learn more about her story and where she stands on policy issues. Erin, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So you write that you came to San Francisco nearly a decade ago, and then in 2014, you write, you had a near-death experience and quit your job, sold everything you owned, road-tripped across America, and planned to move here permanently. What drew you to the Bay Area and to San Francisco? Well, I'd always been attracted to the idea of the Bay Area. Um, it was a place where it seemed to be the opposite, diametrically opposite of every everything where I grew up, and... In 2011, I kind of came out here on a lark. Um, <clears throat> I said, what the heck, I'm just going to go to San Francisco and bought a ticket. And I came out here and spent two weeks. I stopped at this place, Den Soma. It's called Brainwash. It was this cool little cafe with a laundromat. And they had a quote on the wall from Oscar Wilde. It said, everyone who goes missing is said to have been seen in San Francisco. It must be an amazing place and have all the attractions of the next world. And I thought, oh, wow, this is so cool. It's like the first thing I saw when I came here. It's such a charming, interesting city with so many fascinating and different people. And I started living out here part-time in 2011 and basically summer out here, I try to get away from the Mississippi heat and humidity. And yeah, I just fell in love with the Bay Area, and it was it was it was a f- mix between the two of going back and forth. Yeah, it sounds so dramatic when you say near death experience, and it kind of was. But uh, basically, I had been dealing with gender dysphoria most of my life, and at that point, I had basically thought I would never be accepted in the Delta. And I was so I was very self conscious about everything. And I was like, I don't want to try to do this here if I go ahead and try to transition. So I sold everything and traveled across the country and uh, moved here and settled. And my assumptions about how I'd be treated were wrong. So much of my family is very conservative and religious, my friends and family back home. And they were very accepting. I was really surprised. The worst reaction I really had was people like, I have no idea. I don't understand this. No No idea why you're doing it, but you're still my friend. And I still love you. And... and so, yeah, but, you know, the reaction back home was a lot better than I thought. 
yeah, but it's like, heck, I still love San Francisco. It's a place to start, restart over. Just sometimes I guess it's fun to hit the reset button on your life and see. I guess everyone thinks about that. What would you do if you could hit the reset button and start over? Where would you be? And I guess that's why I'm here. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because as a transgender person, you're part of a group that's typically underrepresented among elected officials. And I want to ask you how that lived experience informs your perspective on some pretty crucial issues. But I also want to give you a chance to say, if you want to, how much importance you think that identity actually has in terms of your policymaking goals. Of course, it's one of those things where it comes up a lot because people, you know, especially here, I guess, uh, in the Bay, your identity is expected to be a big part of your positions. I think for me, it's given me a lot of insight into the human condition, like to what I feel about it. I've got a lot more empathy for people in different situations. Like, you know, I was like, I was explaining to someone else in an interview, I was like, it's like I've lived, I've been traveled through the world as a man. I've been perceived as a man. I've been perceived as a woman. I've loved men. I've loved women. I've seen you know, all these different perspectives. And it's, it's given me a lot of empathy for just people, humanity in general. I think there's a lot of good people out there. It, it has become a partisan issue, like so many other things in the in the world right now, and especially in the country. It's become a partisan issue. And uh, my, my concern with things becoming a partisan issue is it becomes less about the issue itself and more about, well, this other person that I oppose supports this, so I'm going to oppose that because they you know, support it, just purely reactionary. And most people are reactionary. It's a totally reasonable human action to things. What I've found is like some of my biggest supporters now are people that initially didn't like me or rejected me because I was trans, and then they started to come around to it because I didn't make it about really being, hey, I am trans, you have to support me because of this reason or whatever. It was more about me being me, and then some people reacted badly, and I was like, hey, I'm sorry to hear that you feel that way, that's unfortunate, you know, and then I just kind of continued on, and after a while they're like, you know, I was wrong, I'm sorry about that. There, there's, an, there's an understanding amongst people, they think a lot of right-wing Republican conservative people are opposed to gender and sexual minorities, LGBT in general. Um, what I found is it's a lot more shallow than you would think. Like, it's less about opposition to the person themselves than the opposition to this generic idea, you know, I don't personally, like, they'll go, I don't personally know anybody this way, and they all seem to be politically opposed to me, so it's like, whatever. But then once they start to know people, it's really amazing how quickly some people change. Well, yeah. on, on that note, I'm sorry to interrupt, because you're kind of going in the direction of another yeah. question that I think I have to ask, which is, you're running as a Republican, and... So, to my knowledge, a supporter of President Donald Trump, and he announced in 2017 that he'd be reinstating a previously repealed ban on transgender people serving in the U.S. military. So what are your thoughts on, on that policy and supporting a president who has advanced that? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. The, the thing that's interesting to me, some of the people, and I'm saying you're asking this, but I've had some other people that have asked that, and in any other context, they'd be ranting about people dying for the military-industrial complex. And I'm like, well, why all of a sudden do you want trans people to, you know, go go die for the mil for this military-industrial complex? But, 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 but seriously, um, the thing with this is, I've got several medical conditions that I'm disqualified from serving in the military for. You know, being trans is probably the most disruptive part of my life. I don't think it's a simple black and white thing. Like transitioning was something that was medically 
and emotionally very disruptive in my life. I, I think the thing is, you know, what, what Trump did was really just re like Obama had changed it before, not long before he got, you know, left office. And then Trump basically rolled it back. There's an element that where we have to be cognizant of the, the physical issues that go with transitioning. I think for me, the topic itself was so wrapped up in the partisanship issue. Like, I think there's a legitimate discussion to be had about trans people in the military, trans people competing in sports. I still now, after, you know, five years of hormone therapy, I'm still somewhat stronger than most of my cisgender female friends. I think there's just a really deep, complex conversation we should have around a lot of these issues, and people are afraid to have it because it's so partisan. Yeah, that's, that's all I can, what I can really say about it. It's like, I think it's, it has become so partisan, we're losing sight of a lot of the nuance in, all, in many of these topics. Well, let's jump right into another extremely partisan hot-button issue. You've been on the cover of Time magazine, not as a solo feature, but because you were in a photo of a crowd on the cover of an issue titled Guns in America. The crowd photo is actually a composite by artist and muralist J.R., who coincidentally, side note, also has a massive digital mural of San Francisco that can be viewed at the SF Museum of Modern Art and see if you can spot the San Francisco public press in that one. But back to this Guns in America issue, can you tell us more about what you're doing in that photo? On the cover, there's like 240 of us in the composite photo. It's basically set up like a big debate. And, you know, you can see me kind of gesturing. For me, what I said was basically gun rights are human rights. You know, the right to defend yourself is an intrinsic human right. Can I throw you another question? Yeah, yeah, throw it in there. So you point out in the digital version of this edition mm -hmm. that you've had more firearms training than most police officers, but you still can't get a concealed per carry permit for your weapon, which you'd like to have for self-defense. What kind of permit do you have, and how do or would you use a weapon for self-defense? You know, I've got around 500 hours of training. I was actually an instructor, an adjunct instructor back in Mississippi, and I actually instructed a lot of police officers. Yeah, I had a concealed carry permit in Mississippi, and I was actually a reserve deputy sheriff there for a while as well. Whether or not you're going to actually use something like that, that's, you need to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And like one of my friends says, there's a, a, a spectrum of self-defense between a harsh word and a gun like you know there needs to be hand-to-hand -hand training generally if you're going to do something like that you need to know about how to use like pepper spray all these other options uh, that's a huge responsibility and you know I always took it very seriously I think I, I don't want to sit there and say like yeah I would do that because it's not something I would really regret if I had to defend myself you know we're told that trans people especially are disproportionately the victim of violent crime. You know, I would hate to say, yeah, I would, or no, I wouldn't, because I think ultimately you never know unless you're in that position. But I've put a lot of thought into it. I think if I was put in that sort of position, I would if use the whatever force was necessary to protect myself. Why would you prefer to have a concealed carry permit? Well, uh, you need a concealed carry permit to carry in California. It's as to a, carry at all? Yeah. Hmm. It's a it's a May issue state. Open carry is totally illegal here. Uh, concealed carry requires a permit, and the permit's issued by the local authorities. But the permit is good statewide. So if you're like in the Central Valley or something and you get a concealed carry permit, it is good in San Francisco. But if you live in San Francisco or somewhere like that, you have to uh, get it from here. 
and that is something that they don't exactly hand out. You also write something else in your campaign bio that I want to ask you about, which is, quote, I can also trace my lineage back to Pocahontas, which, along with $4, is usually enough to get me a light roast at Phil's, end quote. What does this mean? I know. I'm, 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 I'm a little tongue-in-cheek about a lot of things. <laughs> I like to take be humorous about stuff. Um, I, I think uh, there's a—I I guess that's my indirect way of pushing back against some of the— uh, identity politics out there where it's all about less what you believe and who you are and yeah it's it's kind of cool but there's like a hundred thousand other people in the country that are supposedly descended from Pocahontas and uh, of course I'm trying to make light of it I understand that who I am and where I'm from is important but there's a tendency where people want to box me into being that I'm all about looking at people like individuals to be clear one of your opponents in this race is an indigenous organizer do you identify as indigenous I personally don't. That wasn't a slight against her. That's something I've always kind of joked about is the Pocahontas thing. All right. Well, we'll get back to this conversation with State Senate candidate Aaron Smith in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Let's hear more from Aaron Smith, who's running for state senate. One thing that I have to ask you is, why run as a Republican? You're clearly a political minority. Just under seven percent of registered voters in San Francisco's are in San Francisco are registered Republican. So why do this? Well, I'm always used to being the underdog. I guess you could say. I mean, I've got a bunch of uh, you know right wing gun people friends and fans. So I'm a trans person. So I'm, I'm definitely used to convincing people that aren't necessarily my target demographic. Um, some of it is, um, I've always only kind of leaned Republican anyway. Uh, my personal opinion from what I've seen is I feel like the Democratic Party is just turning very technocratic. And for example, like SB50, I think is a great example of that. Part of being a Republican in the city is like, how do you prove that the establishment doesn't own you? Yeah, you know, so if you're part of the, if you have the big scarlet R, you're not part of the establishment, that's for sure. I also think that like a uni party state or locality that's bad for everyone you know you need an opposition to keep everyone on your toes and like call people out um you know hey here's another way for something um otherwise you know people get too comfortable you know the establishment gets too comfortable it's it's probably best for everyone that there's at least two parties or more where that can you know are somewhat equally opposed and can 
actually keep attention going. You know, you have to have somebody, some opposition that calls you out. So, I definitely want to talk about SB 50 and some of your legislative goals. But first, speaking of the establishment, in 2016, the candidates for the seat that you're running for each raised more than $2 million for their campaigns. And Scott Weiner, the current incumbent, raised more than $5 million. How much have you raised, and can you say a little bit about your fundraising strategy or goals as an underdog and as somebody who is outside of the establishment? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I am obviously learning a lot. Um, there's not, we don't have the democratic framework here. Uh, I'm getting a lot of small donors, which is pretty great. And I'm trying to also kind of explore some more unconventional campaign tactics, and we'll see how that goes. I'm not going to be a fundraising juggernaut here, that's for sure. It just doesn't exist in this city. So, Are there contributions you don't want to or won't accept? Um, no, I can't really say that. Um, I mean, I'm sure if the mob tried to donate to me or something, I would say no. But, you know, I doubt that's going to happen anyway. I, I don't foresee an issue with uh, something like that. So. So Scott Weiner, the incumbent, is really well known for his policies around housing production, in particular uh, for authoring legislation intended to override local restrictions on building multifamily housing near transit. His third iteration of that law, SB 50, which adds concessions aimed at minimizing the impact to communities vulnerable to gentrification and lets municipalities retain a little more control than previous versions, is making its way through the legislature now. You oppose SB 50, and you name a couple different reasons for your, for why on your website. And one is that San Francisco's cultural and architectural distinctiveness deserves protecting. What would it mean to do that? Well, let me tell you a really quick story to illustrate this. Um, the steepest street in the world is not in San Francisco. It's actually in a small town called Dunedin, New Zealand. It's Baldwin Street. I've actually visited it. It's pretty interesting. And the reason that exists in the first place, I think, has a lot of bearing on SB 50. Um, basically, when they laid the cities out in New Zealand, they pl- had surveys and they planned everything in London. So when they go over to New Zealand and they're they're laying out the streets and the cities, when they colonize it, they're like, oops, you know, there's a mountain here that wasn't on the survey and they couldn't change it. So they had to build a street up the side of a mountain so that's why you get the street street in the world now in New, Ze- New Zealand. Um, I think for me that's a real – that's kind of ex- – is sort of an example of the mindset behind SB50 that's so screwed up. San Francisco is not the Central Valley. You know, San Francisco is not San Diego. There's very local issues that I think – you know, ultimately you have to have some type of local say. People in the local community should have a say. Otherwise you get mountains, you know – uh, with streets on the hanging off the side of them, um, I, I do. You know, obviously, we need more housing here. Um, the problem is, housing is not really fungible in the same way that you know, like gasoline or oil is. Um, luxury housing is not something that's going to help low-income people. Uh, low-income, you know, if you're going to build, do we even have the transit systems that are can handle the amount of people? That they want to bring in. I mean, this is we're on a peninsula. There's just not really much land, unless you people are going to start digging up Golden Gate Park or something, which I wouldn't support. I don't think most people would support that. The space isn't here. Do we have the infrastructure for it? Um, do we do we want to have a city that looks generic? Like there's parts of downtown San Francisco that 
I mean, I've traveled fairly extensively, and there's parts of it. There's a there's one street in downtown that I swear to God it feels like Calgary. For some reason, I don't know why it reminds me of Calgary. It just looks sort of generic, and it looks like a street there, um, one particular street. Um, so I think we really have to ultimately let the local community decide. Another reason you cite is that instead of having sweeping statewide mm-hmm. reform, we should be lowering general regulatory burdens. <clears throat> From what I've found talking to people, um, the a lot of the stuff, it's rather small groups of people that come in and you leverage parts of like CEQA lawsuits. Um, That's the California Environmental Quality yeah. Act, known as CEQA. Yeah, there's there's the CEQA lawsuits that people leverage. Um, there's other just general, com- you know, complaints and zo- zoning issues that they run into. Um, I think probably starting with that is better. Um, you know, we could have like loser pays for sequel lawsuits. Uh, I think there was SB 35 a couple of years ago, which kind of streamlined a lot of the like the sequel stuff. If you have a certain amount of affordable housing. Uh, I would rather think we should move very carefully with this. Like, I think SB 50 is just basically a mallet when you probably need a scalpel. Even if you bring in housing here, units of housing, I mean, is it even the type of housing you want? And what if it's all luxury housing? Is that going to help the affordable housing problem here? Um, That's definitely thing we have to move a lot more carefully with this. To that point, San Francisco has consistently built less units of housing, fewer units of housing than it needs but it gets significantly closer to its regional goals for constructing market rate housing than it does for its goals for below market rate housing construction. So what level of housing affordability would you primarily focus on and what are your priorities generally for housing construction? Well, I think definitely start working towards CEQA. I have this sense of um, work on the, the CEQA issues. Um, I th- some of that I think is um, it, has to, it has to be a local buy-in. Um, what's the point of voting for supervisor or mayor if Sacramento is going to lay out your housing policies anyway? You know, um, do I have the answer for that? I don't think anyone does. Um, I'm pretty sure Scott Weiner actually doesn't either. Uh, I think part of that there's a mindset where you have to have big government come in and solve all your issues and manage everything for you, and we need to kind of move away from that. Ultimately, I think San Francisco has to be the one who call, makes the call on that. You're also calling for reforms to Proposition 47, which is a state ballot measure passed by voters in 2014 that reduced six nonviolent felonies, including drug possession, to misdemeanors. It also raised the threshold for felony theft from $450 to $950. You've written that you've replaced your car window seven times in a year and that it's clear organized retail theft and auto burglary rings are taking advantage of the loopholes. Can you say a little bit more about why you think this is organized and which loopholes you'd like to close? Yeah, we actually had um, one of the, one of the candidates that came in. You can actually, if you read about it, you can. There's been some different posts and studies. I think City Journal had an article here recently. We had one of our the candidates for DA came in to the Central Committee a couple months ago. Uh, something like around eighty percent is what they're saying of of auto burglaries and retail theft come from uh, organized crime. Crime Ring's doing that. There was actually, last year, there was a pretty big bust. Uh, the San Francisco PD was working with some other local law enforcement partners, and they ro- they rolled up a pretty big ring of uh, organized like organized retail theft rings. Like, you can actually see, apparently you can actually see um, 
people will come in there and they'll actually grab stuff and they'll actually add up the price and they'll basically run out of the store and they go down the street and drop it off and come back and hit another store. So it's it's something people are taking advantage of. Um, obviously, being a ballot measure, it's trickier. You can't just really go in there and repeal it the same way. But it would be something trying to to work on a ballot measure for that. You know, either repeal that for auto theft, and also it's basically almost impossible to get. Apparently, we had thirty three thousand car break ins last year. Um, there's only a couple hundred arrests, and I think only a handful of convictions for that, because you have to prove that the car was locked for it to be a felony. If, it, if it's just, you know, and you have to prove it. Like, you can't, even if the window smashed, like, you basically have to prove the car was lo- was locked, which is very, very difficult to do. Another area where you're calling for change is AB5. That's the gig worker law that went into effect at the beginning of this year. It makes it harder for companies to label workers as independent contractors instead of employees. And it also imposes a 35 contribution limit a year for contractors like freelancers. There's already been a lot of pushback against AB5 from companies like Uber and Lyft, at whom the legislation was ostensibly aimed. But there's also pushback from other industries like freelance writers and truckers. Truckers were recently granted an exemption from AB5 by a judge. So you say that while we need to be vigilant against corporations offloading labor costs onto society, we have to acknowledge that some people are choosing to be gig workers. What would strike a better balance to your mind? Yeah, um... I know lots of people here that do gig work, and like I, I do a little bit of it myself too. It's a lot, you know. It, there's an incredible flexibility for that. If I want to go back to being a regular employee, I'm just going to go back to driving ships again. You know, um, I don't want to be, I don't like little side jobs. I don't want to try to be an employee for any of that. Um, the flexibility is really important. There's lots of people here, like 70% of people who do like freelance contract gig work are doing it because. They can freelance because it's flexible. Um, you know, there are people, I know people that are here working on like their startup dreams. Like they've got an idea and they want to try to work on that. And that's their primary job. And, you know, trying to get something new going, trying to be disruptive. And then they're like, well, you know, I've got to do some other little jobs on the side. And they'll, maybe they'll drive ride share or they'll have an Airbnb or they'll do all these other little, a dozen little things that you can do. Um, that are very difficult to do if you're trying to do six part-time jobs. You, you know, part-time employment as an employee, if you can just do them on your own. Um, heck, I was running around charging scooters a little bit, and that was a lot of fun. Some of these jobs, you shouldn't try to make them your full-time career, and we have to be cognizant of stuff. Like, yeah, there's issues with, like, rideshare who do want to, are probably treating some people who should be employees, not, you know, giving them stipends. I think the um, stipends for empl- for insurance or something like that. There's the Protect app-based drivers and delivery services ballot measure that they're trying to do for later this year. I think that's a good idea. It basically says if you do more than 15 hours, you have to give them a stipend, you know, set the minimum wage, something like that. That's much better. Like, don't try to fit everyone into being an employment, an actual formal employee. The freelancers, like the contractors... The writers. It was really interesting because, like, they, they in particular should probably be exempted. There should be a lot more thought put into AB five. It was far too sweeping. Um, you know, Dynamex decision is what it is, but we have to be much more careful. And it really comes back into, I think, a lot of this stuff for me really kind of wraps up, like in like SB fifteen, AB five, and th- those in particular are really kind of drive home the whole idea of like this one-size-fits-all top-down decision-making. 
Um, if AB5 is turning out to be a disaster, then why do we expect SB50 to be any different? You know, they're, they're really the same principles. You know, someone in Sacramento on the other side of the state, or maybe not on the other side of the state from here, but for many other people, far disconnected from local realities and local decision-making and the local conditions. Yeah, so I, I really, I, I think... Personally, I, I want flexibility in my life. I want to be able to build a flexible life, and I think that's something that AB5 damages, and, and I've seen it damage other people's lives. Like, they're, they're wondering, what are we going to do now? We're trying to, do, we're trying to build this business, and I may have to ditch it because now I'm going to have to go try to get a regular job again. You know, there's lots of people I know like that. They're just, they don't know what they're going to do now. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for talking with me about all this. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. That was Aaron Smith, who's running for California State Senate. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Host and reporter, Laura Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. The publisher of the Public Press is Lila LaHood. Executive director, Michael Stoll. Director of membership and community, Daphne Magnawa. Assistant Editor, Noah Arroyo. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>